let's begin with class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study, and we thank you for providing this uh, beautiful facility for us to meet together and worship you. We pray that your angels will join us, your spirit will be upon us, that our hearts will be filled with your love, and, and our minds will, will understand and comprehend your truth. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 10 in our quarterly health and healing, and the lesson title today is Integrity, Wholeness, and Holiness. If someone would read the memory text for us, which is Titus 2, 7, and 8. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have, they have nothing bad to say about us. How would this look in 2010? How would we apply this in 2010? Any thoughts? Well, what is integrity? And I looked it up in the dictionary, and the dictionary definition of integrity is adherence to moral and ethical principles, soundness of moral character, honesty. And my mind immediately asked the question, and hopefully your mind asked the same question, um, would it matter if, if integrity is adherence to moral and ethical principles, would it matter what one's morals were or what one's principles were? Would that matter? Yes, so so in order to have integrity, we first need to not just say, well, they adhere to morals and principles. We want to say, well, what morals and what principles are they adhering to? And so the next question that came to my mind is, where does one derive one's principles? Any thoughts about that? The Ten Commandments. And I looked up principles in the dictionary. And there are two definitions that I thought were, were particularly relevant. Listen to these two definitions of principles. Think of integrity is adherence to principles. First is a fundamental primary or general law or truth from which others are derived, i.e. the principles of modern physics. So we, we call these natural laws, like gravity and so forth, these principles. Here's another definition. It says a fundamental doctrine or tenet, a distinctive ruling or opinion, the principles of the church. Are they the same? They should be the same. I was going to ask that question. She's already asked. I said, should the principles uh, of the general law or truth, the principles of modern physics and so forth, the, the, the laws upon which the universe is built, should they be the principles of the church? Yes. Are they? Yes. Interesting, isn't it? Is, isn't it? Let's look at some examples about this and, and see if it makes a difference if we adhere to principles established by the church rather than principles that emanate from the creator who designed the universe. Let's see if it makes a difference. Examples. The Jews in Christ's day had principles established by the church of their day in regard to Sabbath observance. Did they not? Yes. And did the Pharisees and religious leaders uh, adhere to the principles that the church of that day had established for how to obey the Sabbath? Yes. So we could say, then, that those were people of integrity. Yes? Well, you see the problem when we, when we have a definition of principle established by the church. And, and if they're adhering to the principles established by the church, then why did Jesus have conflict with them? Or why did they have conflict with Jesus? Was, was there conflict between the Pharisees? Okay, here's a man with a withered arm. And Jesus looks to them and says, 
is it good? Does our law permit us to do good or evil on the Sabbath day? And they didn't answer him. They remained silent. Why didn't they not answer him? Well, they had a principles. They had their principles established by the church that you're not to do any work, you're not to walk so many steps, you're not to carry anything, you're not to so forth and so on. Christ had a different set of principles, didn't he? What was his set of principles based upon? God's government and God's law of? Which is? Unselfishness. Giving of self to help, to uplift, to heal, to regenerate, to, to benefit others. And so he sees a man with a withered arm. Which principle is primary? Helping another man or observing a rule set by the church? You see? So he, in their mind, becomes a Sabbath breaker because they have uh, determined that their principles that they made of the church, the church principles, the church ruling, is supersedes the natural order of God's design. Do you see the problem? Yeah. If you have these wrong principles, if you determine that the church's ruling is more important than the, than the principles of God's universe that he created things to run upon, then what do you do? Well, then you crucify the creator. And you want to be sure he's down by sunset so you can observe the principles of the Sabbath that you have determined are more important than the creator of the Sabbath. You see how twisted it gets. So what is the true principle of the Sabbath then? Today, let's, let's bring this to our, our application here and now. Is it... Pardon? Leaders of the Jewish church back then. To me, I look at that. Maybe I just remember what we were talking about. It was a control thing. Sure it was. Absolutely. Don't. But Christ never put that on. Don't tell me if I walk 30 feet too long and I'm going to help because it's my turn. I don't know. To me, I don't know. That was their understanding. That were the principles that they established. Yes. What about today? What are the principles of the Sabbath? Is it avoidance of work? Avoidance of going out to eat? Attendance to church. We'd be a real Sabbath keeper if we did these things. Avoidance of chores or homework or TV and radio. What does it really mean to... I mean, which set of principles... And how do we apply the principles that Christ lived by and avoid uh, falling into a pharisaical trap of a church-made set of principles? Well, maybe you keep that in your mind and cogitate on that as we work our way through the lesson today. Are there people, though, that, that we all would know that we're, we're very much like the Pharisees here in our church today that are rigid rule keepers but don't love well? Do we ever see that today? Yeah. So what, the question then, what, what, what would lead people to do this? What could cause people to crucify God thinking they're keeping the Sabbath? And where could, could people come up with such distorted principles? How could that happen? Where, where does that stuff originate? Lies about God. Lies about God, she says. This is out of a, a magazine you may have heard of called The Review and Herald, April 5th, 1887. And uh, listen to this. It says, We are not to think of God only as a judge and to forget him as our loving father. Nothing can do our souls greater harm than this, for our whole spiritual life will be molded by our conceptions of God's character. Our whole spiritual life molded 
by our conceptions of God's character. Or this is out of one called Acts of the Apostles, a book, uh, page 530. It says, having received the faith of the gospel, the next work of the believer is to add to his character virtue and thus cleanse the heart and prepare the mind for, prepare the mind for the reception of the knowledge of God. This knowledge is the foundation of all true education and of all true service. It is the only real safeguard against temptation. What's the only real safeguard against temptation? The knowledge of God. Not a set of rules put out by the church. No, the knowledge of God. And it is this alone that can make one like God in character. And of course, if we put this to scripture very quickly in Romans chapter one, Paul told them six times, six times why God's wrath came. And he told them three times what it was, but six times he said they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. They preferred images made with their own hands to the truth about God. But over and over again, he's, t- he's hammering on this point. And what happens to somebody who exchanges the truth about God, that he's loving, kind, gracious, forgiving, as Jesus revealed him to be, for this other thing in which they are Angry, wrathful, severe, cruel. Let's keep going. One more, one more, one more um, quote. This is Faith I Live By, page 59. Thousands have a false conception of God and his attributes. They are as verily serving a false God as were the servants of Baal. Amen. Think that through. If you hold in your mind a distorted picture of God and worship that distorted picture, she goes on to say, are we worshiping the true God as he is revealed in his word in Christ? Remember, Christ is our touchstone. He is the word made flesh. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, In Christ, in nature, or are we adoring some philosophical idol enshrined in in his place? God is a God of truth. Justice and mercy are the attributes of his throne. He is a God of love, of pity, and tender compassion. Thus he is represented in his Son, our Savior. He is a God of patience and long-suffering. If such is the being whom we adore and to whose character we are seeking to assimilate, we are worshiping the true God. Isn't that powerful stuff? So the question, where do people get these distorted principles? Where does it start? Satan's lies about God. We first accept distorted pictures of God, and then we form principles based off those distorted pictures. So let's go back and ask some questions with this in mind. What would you say were the characteristics or character qualities of the God that the Jewish leaders worshipped at the time of Christ? If you were to, to, to describe that God, here's the Jewish God, the one that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were worshipping. What were the characteristics of that God? Power. Power. I think that was number one. They weren't of God of power. What else? Exacting. Exacting. Okay. Remember what exacting means? No tolerance for deviations. Arbitrary. Preferential. Vindictive. Preferential. Yeah, he he was a a racist because he preferred the Jews over everyone else. Yeah. What else? Rigid. Rigid. How about severe? Was he forgiving? A forgiving God? An unforgiving God. An angry God. A vengeful God. A wrathful God. Wow. Yes. Have you ever heard leaders today, preachers today, preach a God that sounds like this? Yes. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? Yeah. Fat, no blood in. There's a lot of rules, and they focused on the rules instead of the, 
Was that God's original design? No. Was it his original plan? No. Then how, how was it that God ended up doing this if that's not what he really wanted him to do? It says all through the Old Testament, I have no pleasure in the sacrifice of animals, the fat of fatted rams. My heart detests these things, the blood of animals. I don't, it makes me sick. Who said God did it? Oh, God gave him clear instructions through Moses to do these things. Yeah, but why? Yeah. I had a discussion with someone last week and we were discussing how liberal the church has become and stuff today. And they brought up, well, how about in the wilderness wanderings? I mean, this is the wilderness where people were. And God, when, when children show disrespect to the parents and to authority, God told them to take them outside of the camp and stone them. Oh, so sh- what do you think about that? Kids? Any kids in here? You need to read those rules much more carefully. <laughs> when you read patriarchs and prophets, it's pretty clear about what God instructed people to do. When they stoned a child, there were only two people who could accuse the child, and they had to agree. Still, they stoned We don't know if that ever actually took place. Yeah, the, the first one to throw the stones would, would have to be the parents. They would have to accuse them. But what image does that give a child of God if our parents represent God to us on this earth? The image they have of it's all, it's all the context, isn't it? It's all the context. But the point is, he gave them instructions to do it. But what's the context? Yes, over here. Uh, I think that we look to. Look to God why would He do that rather than look at the people and ask what was going on with them as to why they would need that. Thank you. Did everybody hear that? He says we look to God and ask why would God do that rather than looking at what condition the people are in and saying why would they need that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's a great question, Tim. You know, I also think that we are looking back hindsight and we are looking at hundreds, thousands of years, and we can say, look at all the wonderful things they've done, but they could go generations and feel like nothing, God was not there and was not doing things for them. Really? Stoning their child was a day, you know, not feeling like he was doing good things for them, like we can look back and say, look at this that you did and all this that you did. Ten plagues of Egypt, pillar of fire by night, walking through on dry ground, manna every day of the week except Sabbath, um, water from the rock, uh, no diseases, the clothes don't wear out. Uh, there's nothing going on that we could see that God would be benefiting us. We see these, I think we look at it differently than they were living through. You know, they could have they could see past that. <laughs> well, that shows the darkness of their mind, just like the people who went to crucify Christ. If you remember, after, after the angel passes before them, the bright light, uh, they fall down as dead men. Peter whips out the... The sword whacks off Malchus's ear. Jesus tells him to put up the sword. Jesus picks up the ear, puts it on the guy's his back. Boom. No. And then they go, let's kill him. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't they give you pause? But you know, there's a story of you of God turned into the story of you of what their Messiah should be like. That's, that's my point. Yes, that's my point. Your mind can be some, so, become so darkened that you can't even see the evidence. So back to this. We see, a, and I want to draw the distinction here. We see Satan's representation of God, which is clearly what the leaders in Christ's day were promoting. And we just described those characteristics. I want to now ask the question, what are God's true characteristics? Yes. Can we just be careful to not make the God of the Old Testament that vindictive, angry God? Because I think if you read the Old Testament carefully, you do not see that picture. And I read those laws, and I don't see them as God's anger and God's mean. And 
I'd like to correct that because I think that's a misconception many people have that, well, the God of the Old Testament is very mean, but then he sent Jesus and... Well, the God of the Old Testament is Jesus. Well, that's... Paul says in, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 through 3, that the rock through which the children of Israel drank was Jesus Christ. The God of the Old Testament that you see doing all those things was Jesus Christ. And so you have to ask the question, why did he thunder at Sinai but cried at Olivet? Same God. Why? What's going on? They would have heard a still small voice. They wouldn't hear a still small voice. This is exactly right. And I think we'll get to the answers to that question as we go through the lesson today. So keep that in mind as well. So what characteristics do you see of God today? What are his true characteristics? We saw Satan's representation. We just went through it. What are God's true? What's he really like? Love. Love. What else? Forgiving. Forgiving. Patient. Long-suffering. Consistent. Kind. Self-sacrificing. Creative. Gentle. Mild. Meek. Humble. Pursuing. Pursuing, yes. Do you see, a, do you see a, a totally different picture of these two concepts? Yeah, and, and we're talking about where do we derive our principles? Where do you derive the principles you practice in your life? Because your God concept, everything depends on the God that you worship. You become like the God that you worship. Your principles will be practiced like that. So we might ask the question then, okay, we have these two God concepts. How is it that so many people... Okay, we have the leaders. We understand them. You were right back there. Power, control. They wanted to denominate. But what about all the, the followers, the, the masses? Why would they go along with leadership? Do you remember the, uh, the, the man that was born blind? And Jesus healed the man that was born blind. And then they called the parents in and asked the parents, is this your son? And is born blind? What happened? And do you remember they were evasive? They didn't want to answer and take a stand. Why? They were afraid of the leaders. Why? Because the leaders might throw them out of the synagogue, you see. Afraid of the leaders and the power. Listen to this out of uh, Second Testimonies 129. See if this has any application to any people today. If we mistake the wisdom of man for the wisdom of God, we are led astray by the foolishness of man's wisdom. Here is the great danger of many in Collegedale. <laughs> they have not an experience for themselves. They have not been in the habit of prayerfully considering for themselves with unprejudiced, unbiased judgment questions and subjects that are new and that are ever liable to arise. In other words, uh, new questions, new ideas, new concepts, people aren't willing to think about them. They're not willing to investigate. They're not willing to weigh the evidences with their, with their own good judgment. They wait to see what others will think. If these others dissent, that is all that is needed to convince them that the subject under consideration is of no account whatever. Although this class is large, it does not change the fact that they are inexperienced and weak-minded through long yielding to the enemy and will always be as sickly as babes, walking by others' light, living on others' experience, feeling as others feel, and acting as others act. They act as though they had not an individuality. Their identity is submerged in others. They are merely shadows of those who they think are right. Unless these become sensible of their wavering character and correct it, they will all fail of everlasting life. They will be unable to cope with the perils of the last day. They will possess no stamina to resist the devil, for they do not know that it is he. Someone must be at their side to inform them whether a foe or a friend is approaching. They are not spiritual. Therefore, spiritual things are not discerned. They are not wise in those things which relate to the kingdom of God. Neither young nor old are excusable in trusting to another to have an experience for them. A noble self-reliance is needed in the Christian experience in warfare. What do you think of that? 
stresses the importance of each one of us having our own individual relationship with Christ. Have you heard me say in here that I'm not here to tell you what to think? I have never been here to tell any of you what to think. I've always been here to try to get you to think, to engage your individuality, to reason things out for yourself, to weigh the evidences. Do you see, though, that there are those who don't want to practice this? There are those who want to let someone in authority tell them what to think. Throughout the history of the world, yes, we still battle this battle. It is not God's method. God has given every person their own identity, their own individuality, their own ability to reason and think, and it is his design that we engage these faculties in harmony with his spirit and principles and become the beings he created us to be in Eden. Amen. Yes. This is out of uh, Second Testimonies 129. So as we think about what was just read here, I want to take you to some scripture and also take you over to Sunday's lesson. Look in Sunday's lesson. Very top first paragraph. Listen to these words. In, in line with what, what we just read. Compromise is so easy, isn't it? Especially as one gets older, things do not often appear so black and white as they once did. And I read that. And then she, and it goes on to describe slow compromise over time. But I read that and I thought, wow. Do you mean as we get older, we should maintain a rigid black and white thinking? They're advocating this, and uh, it seems that they are. Hmm. I thought about that, and then I thought about the scriptures on this whole, like, child and infant and sickly as babes thing. Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 3. This is Paul writing. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Uh, Righteousness. Have you ever heard of righteousness by faith? Do you hear that promoted, that, that, that phraseology a lot in our church? But if you're an infant, you're not acquainted with righteousness. You might use the word but you don't know what it means. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Wait a minute. What, what does that sound like? What, what, what would you call the process of, of being able to distinguish good from evil? Maturity. It's, a mature, it's a mature ability. You have grown in maturity. What would you call that process of doing it, though? Discernment. Discernment. Would that require reasoning, thinking? Weighing out the evidence is engaging your mind. Yes, it would. Let's go on in the scripture. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation. And, and what is what is the elementary teaching? The stuff we don't want to lay again. He says, let's not lay again this foundation, this elementary basic stuff of repentance from acts that lead to death. What's that saying? Repentance from acts. Where's the focus? behavior and rules do's and don'ts that's child stuff that's infancy we need to grow up we need to move past it because if you're stuck here if you're teaching this type of thing hey there are angels recording all the bad stuff you do and you're going to have to face this because you better do it or not do it you better make sure the penalty is paid you're not even acquainted with righteousness so what is being described Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 11 says, When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. What was the context of Paul's statement of, of 1 Corinthians 13? Does that ring any bells to anybody? Yeah. 1 Corinthians 13 is the chapter of love. love. He's describing what love is. Love would be 
God-like love would be in harmony with righteousness, wouldn't it? If you are a person of the law of love written on your heart, wouldn't you be a righteous person? Yes. And so he's telling us that in order to experience this love, we have to move from childlike things and become mature. This is the context. Can I make a comment about what you said before about uh, the picture of God that the children of Israel have and uh, the mature vision? They weren't different. Maybe they were just different stages of moral development. That's what we're about to talk about. Excellent, timely point. Let's talk about different stages of first cognitive development and then moral development and see if we see how different stages of development impact how we see and teach God. And you may have heard of Piaget, who described um, four stages of cognitive development. And I'm going to walk through those and let you see those. And then we're going to come to moral development. Maybe you've heard of Kohlberg's moral stages. We're going to talk about those as well. But let's first look at Piaget. Sensory motor, the first stage of, of cognitive normal human development, is from the time of the child's birth to the f- first 24 months of age. And, and during this time of cognitive development, it's basically all sensory motor. It's touch, taste, smell sound, it's basically uh, gathering a data set. It's just filling the mind with information, uh, facts upon which to build a, a database of experiences. From, tw- from two years to seven years of age, it's called pre-operational. And children at this level learn to, to begin thinking. They develop thoughts about the world. They learn language, which is, which is thought representations of things. They learn how to draw objects, but they cannot problem solve in their head. And they are self-centered and cannot empathize well. An example of the egocentrism or self-centeredness of a child would be uh, an experiment they did with children where they will uh, show them three different views of a mountain. And then they will ask the child to imagine a doll passing by this mountain at different angles and ask the child, what would the doll see from that angle? And the child always picks the point of reference from where the child is. They can't see the world from another person's vantage point at this age. Uh, they also experience what's called animism, and that is believing that inanimate objects have human-like qualities. So if they trip over a chair, they might think that the chair was mad at them and tripped them because the chair was mad at them. How might that impact a person's view of God? You see, something bad happens. Well, you know, see how they might apply that. Um, they're unable to demonstrate what's called conservation. So if you have two beakers of water, one is a, a thin narrow beaker that maybe holds, uh, you know, 50 cc's of, of liquid. And then you got a large, wide beaker that maybe holds a couple of gallons. And you take this small, narrow beaker and you fill it all the way full and you pour it in the, in the larger one. And you fill it full again and you pour it in the larger one. And you fill it full again and pour it in the larger one. Maybe you do this three or four times. And the larger one now has, you know, maybe this much in the bottom of it. And then you fill the other one all the way full and you ask the child which one has more water in it. They will, pu- they will pick the small one. Because it's all the way full, you see. They can't understand conservation. This one's full, that one's only partially full. They, they, they don't have the capacity at this age to, to do that. Other studies have revealed that only 50% of children master these levels by the time they're 13 uh, or 14. So in middle adolescence, a lot of kids still can't do these types of, of these uh, uh, con- constructs. Next is concrete operations, which generally uh, go from 7 to 11 years of age. So these basic stuff that should have been done by 7, at 13 to 14, half the kids still can't do it well. Um, concrete operations, 7 to 11 years of age, they begin to use basic logic. And if A is larger than B, and B is larger than C, then A is larger than C. 
basic logic they can start doing. They can sequence things. They can group things in similar groups. Um, but they cannot abstract reason. And they only can begin starting to see the world from another person's perspective. And then formal operations begin around age 11 and continue through adulthood. And this is where we begin to abstract think, think logically, hypothesize, uh, do hypothetical situations, see various perspectives on a problem, empathize with others, and so forth. So what if someone doesn't make the developmental transitions in thinking? And they stay stuck at some earlier level. They don't make it up to formal operations. They can't abstract well. They can't empathize well. Uh, They see things only in black and white as the concrete operations do. Would that affect how they see God and understand the Bible? Yeah. Paul says we we need to grow up. We don't need to stay as infants and children. Uh, Ellen White said we, we don't need to stay as sickly as babes. We need to learn how to think differently. And then Kohlberg's moral stages. And I think you'll find this extremely fascinating. This gets very, very uh, specific. There are, there are three stages, and each stage has two levels. And he breaks them into A, B, and C, the three stages, and then, and then each, each stage is given a number, one through six. So the first uh, grouping is the pre-moral stage, before morals. And stage one is called punishment and obedience. Avoidance, and, and in this stage of moral operation, we, we do what's right to avoid physical punishment in deference to power. The immediate physical consequences, the immediate physical consequences of an action determine its goodness or badness. So something's good. If you're not punished, then it's, it's okay. And the atrocities carried out by soldiers during the Holocaust show that even adults can operate at this level because they were only following orders lest they be punished. And the level two is called instrumental exchange, and this is like a marketplace exchange of favors. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Justice is doing to others what they do to you. This is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth mentality. Wrongdoing in this moral development stage must be punished, and in fact, vengeance is considered a moral duty. If you don't take vengeance on somebody who's done wrong, then you are immoral. Because an eye must be taken for an eye. That sounds familiar. Yes. This is level two. Very, very primitive and childlike development. Level two of moral development. And the next, le- the next grouping is called conventional morality. And level three is called interpersonal conformity. And this is right is, con- is conformity to the behavioral expectations of one's society or peers. The individual acts to gain approval from the peer group that they socialize with. Good behavior is that which pleases or helps others within the group. Everybody's doing it, so it must be right to do. Uh, One earns approval by being uh, conventionally respectable and nice. Many people play this game in College Dale. Oh, I'm not kidding. This community breeds this type of morality. You must dress the right way. You must eat the right foods. You must watch the right subjects. Don't wear the wrong things on your garments, the accoutrements. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Be sure to attend the right services and come to church with the right facade and mask. Let's not be honest and tell people the problems we're struggling with because we all must play the game to get the community approval and have stamp of righteous from the community by your name. And if someone steps out of line and makes a mistake, wow, there's severe communal gossip, criticism, ruining of reputation, and ostracization. Does this not happen? 
Yes. Oh no, no. The Quakers are quite good at this too. They shun. <laughs> yes. And the Amish too. I wasn't suggesting this was exclusive to this community. I was just trying to help us realize we're not immune to this process. No, this is a human, human process. Retribution, um, sin is, by the way, a breach of the expectations, and retribution is applied collectively. And the collective group will shun or will um, devalue or will gossip together or will join together to in some way make the person feel devalued. Failure to punish is unfair because if he can get away with it, why can't I? So we have to do this or else the group will deteriorate, you see. Stage four. See if this sounds familiar to many of you. Respect for rules, laws, and uh, and properly constituted authority. Defense of a given social institutional form for its own sake. We uphold a law because the law must be upheld. Justice normally refers to criminal and forensic justice. Justice demands that the wrongdoer be punished, that he pay his debt to society, and that law abiders be rewarded a good day's pay for a good day's work. Injustice is failing to reward honest work and failing to punish demerits. Authority figures are seldom questioned. He must be right because he's the Pope, he's the President, he's the Judge, He is God. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Does this invite thinking? Reasoning? No. In this particular case, justice requires that every sin must meet its punishment. Urged Satan. That's found in Desire of Ages 761. I'm not familiar with that research. You want to share it with us? Yeah. Uh, basically, we wanted to know exactly what the Holocaust did ah. in America. Is this where they would have them like inflict pain upon people? Yes. Shocking people? Yeah. Yeah. And people would, people would inflict pain through electric shock to people uh, uh, because they were under instructions or direction to do so. Yes, they wouldn't, their own consciences wouldn't stop them from doing it. Yeah. Yes. And the reason why this is because we taught a lesson on following others and then told them about the scandal. And I saw this, and the guy was okay. He said, Well, I don't hurt him. And he goes, That's okay. And he goes, So if you take responsibility for me killing this person, you're going to take responsibility. And he goes, Okay. Go right on the butt. So if it's off your conscience, it doesn't matter to them. It was just amazing to me. They're still pushing the button. Yes, exactly. So that's stage four. There is actually a stage four and a half. <laughs> and stage four and a half is between this one we just went, which is conventional, and the post-conventional levels five and six. And this is a transitional stage. And, and, and you will all be very familiar with this one. This is the college-age student that have come to see how ridiculous these arbitrary rules are and they make no sense. But they haven't yet quite understood the universal ethical principles that life is based upon, and so they devolve into a hedonistic ethic of do your own thing, which is the hippies of the 60s. Okay, so you go through this transition of maybe wild living because you realize the arbitrary rules are arbitrary and nonsense, but yet you haven't understood the principles uh, behind what healthy life is all about. And then the post-conventional, stage five, 
prior rights and social contract. And when in this, in this stage, moral action is a speci- uh, in a specific situation is not defined by reference to a checklist of rules, but from logical application of universal abstract moral principles. In other words, loving people type thing. Individuals have natural and inalienable rights and liberties that are prior or exist before society sets up its laws. And the society is to protect those inalienable rights that were pre-existence to the society. Retributive justice is repudiated. Justice demands punishment. The statement, justice demands punishment, which was self-evident truism in stage four, uh, is just a self-evident nonsense in stage five. Retributive punishment is neither rational nor just because it does not promote healing, restoration, rights, health, welfare. The only legal sanctions that are reasonable and just in this stage are those that protect future victims, deter future crime, or result in rehabilitation of the offender. Do you see a difference, a moral difference? And the freedoms of the individual should only be limited by society when their freedoms infringe upon another person's freedoms. This is level five. Level six, universal ethical principles. An individual who reaches this stage acts out of universal principles based upon the equality and worth of all human beings. Persons are never a means to an end, but are an end in themselves. Having rights, having rights means uh, more than individual liberties. This is the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which is just the opposite of do unto others as they do unto you. Uh, the list of rules is no longer, the list of rules inscribed on stone is no longer le- needed because it's now inscribed on the heart. At this level, God is understood to say what is right because it's actually right. It's not his saying it that makes it right. Persons at this level have accepted God's invitation to come and reason together. Isn't that nice? <laughs> I didn't insert that. That was in the... Uh, <laughs> I thought that was nice. Oh, that's good. <laughs> and here's some observations made by Kohlberg. Here's some of his observations who wrote these moral principles. Stage development is invariant. What that means is you must progress through every stage in order. You cannot skip a stage to get to another stage. And they'll get this one. This is important for us to recognize in what we're dealing with in the community. Stage development, subjects cannot comprehend moral reasoning at a stage more than one stage above their own. So if someone's at stage four and you're at stage six, the person at stage four cannot comprehend what you're trying to tell them. It's beyond their ability. You ever wonder why there's no understanding? Yeah. Actually, the next point I'm going to make will help us understand how do we how do we move them then? Here's here's the next thing. In stage development, movement through the stages is effected when cognitive disequilibrium is created. This is called cognitive dissonance, something that causes you to be no longer at peace in your internal world. And this is when a person's framework or outlook is not adequate to cope with the moral dilemmas of reality around them. It no longer explains life for them. There's problems that this doesn't work for anymore. That then moves them to find a better solution and helps move through, through the problem. There are some people who do not tolerate this, what we call cognitive dissonance, this internal emotional tension well, long enough to even wrestle through for a better enlightenment. And so what they do instead is they deny and they distort. They refuse the light. They shut their mind out to truth. 
because it would cause dissonance and disequilibrium. This is what the Pharisees in Christ's day did. They would not let the light in because it would upset their apple cart. Their worldview could no longer hold together. And so they would shut out the light. And there are people today that do the same thing. The light is there, but they won't allow it in because it causes a dissonance and unsettles them. And so, but the only way that they can transver, tra- travel through to higher levels is to process that light, even though it's uncomfortable to do it. Another point that Kohlberg made, it is quite possible for a human being to be physically mature, but not morally mature. I think that's self-evident, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And then Kohlberg believed that only about 25% of persons ever grow to level six. The majority remain at level four. Level four was legal penal substitution. Level four. Now, let's give some examples here. The Bible enjoins principles of modesty, humility, and wise stewardship of money. Application of these principles might preclude the purchase of expensive jewelry, furs, flashy cars, and other items primarily for show. A person functioning at level six would have no problem applying these principles. Persons functioning at level four, on the other hand, might make a rules about jewelry in a church, for instance, or a school, uh, red dresses or cosmetics or other list of rules that are inappropriate to do that they have to now follow, but they might not even notice a flashy car or a lady who wears a brand new dress every week to church. Those aren't on the list, so it's not a problem. I'll see it. I mean, do we see it right here in Collegedale? Absolutely. If Kohlberg's observations are then true, then level six thinkers would be in the minority, and they might even be misunderstood and persecuted by level four thinkers. We're not in Kansas anymore. (laughs) Yeah. This is making sense to you all. Do you see it in our real life in this last couple of months? This This is being lived out right here. Let's go on to the atonement and how these different moral stages impact atonement. Level one in the atonement. A man at level one will see a man sinned, God, God is offended, God responded with angry vengeance taking the life of Christ. God had to kill Christ as our substitute. Level one. Because sin requires punishment. Level two. God somehow struck a bargain with the devil, a marketplace exchange of Christ's life, and he paid a ransom to the devil in trade for the devil's releasing of his hostages. In the popular version, Satan found out too late that God had conned him when Christ rose from the dead. (laughs) I'm not kidding. This is taught still. People believe this. Levels three and four. Levels three and four. The law must be kept. Man broke the law. Someone had to pay the penalty. The wages of sin is death. Jesus paid the penalty. The integrity of the law is maintained. Majority of Christianity is stuck at level four. And I see church leadership in Christ's day. How about in our, stuck at level four? How about in our day? Too many. Level five and six. Christ demonstrated that separation from God is death. Why have you forsaken me? Since we separate ourselves from him and not him from us, he is not our executioner. Can you say amen to that? Because it is taught very close to where I'm standing in this community that God is our executioner. He allowed Satan to play out his hand, exposing his selfish character for all, both man and angels, to see, and thus erasing all sympathy for the accusations of the fallen foe. 
God's character is vindicated. Christ destroyed in his own person the infection of sin and and cured or basically restored humanity back to God's original ideal. And then there's a level seven in the atonement model. Atonement becomes at one meant. God did what it took to win our love and trust, destroy the infection of sin and restore us to unity with him again. Neither God nor his law, defined as his eternal principles upon which he bases his government, change. Neither God nor his law change. But our understanding of his law changes. And God speaks to us at each level of our understanding. It is a mistake to cling to expressions appropriate to an earlier age of understanding, regardless how valid and useful they were in their own context, when a more appropriate expression exists. In other words, it's inappropriate not to grow up. That's what that means. But we must be patient with our brothers and sisters who are perhaps just starting the growth process, just newborn babes, haven't had time, and allow the pastor to preach to them sometimes. And if you're a 21-year-old and you have a, uh, a child, a brother or sister, is maybe only six in the house, you don't get distraught when the mommy and daddy maybe speak very legalistically, you better do this or you're going to get punished. You don't get distraught by that because you understand the context that the child needs that at that time. The problem is, is when the parent continues to talk to the 21-year-old like that. Or the 21-year-old continues to hear the parent and thinks that's what the parent's doing. For even as God was laying down the detailed, concrete rules of do's and don'ts for the Israelites, he was already looking forward to the day when the law would be written on the heart and mind. And that's where he wants it on our hearts and minds. Questions about any of this? Does this help us understand some of the questions we asked earlier? Yes. Is this the way God designed it to be, that we would only see it legally to begin with and finally get mature? Or if his plan had been perfect, I mean, his plan was perfect, could it stay that way without that? Would it have been a total plan? She asked if this is the way God actually designed it to be, that we go through these legalistic and forensic stages, or is this uh, because of the fact that uh, things didn't go as God originally did? I do not think that what we are describing here is a result of God's design in Eden. But the fact that because of sin, our minds became dark, and darkness discovers the earth, grows darkness to people, lies about God were believed, distortions were in our head, the infection of fear and selfishness took control of our heart, we are self-referenced and egocentric now. All of that is now what we're trying to grow out of, and it's God's plan of re- truth and love working against this infection that requires us to work ourselves through these stages. Because what God wants cannot be achieved by the exercise of might and power. Right. You cannot be enlightened by force. Yes. Somebody. Yes. What is part of his design is reasoning, thinking, weighing evidences, looking for truth. Uh, but there were no stages to go through until there were lies. And when Satan started telling us lies, then yes, God's design is that each person weigh the issues and come to their own conclusions. Yes. And so that is his design. But it wasn't his design that there'd be sin. There wasn't his design that there'd be lies that they have to be countered with truth, but it was his design that all his intelligent beings have their own individuality, reason and think for themselves, have a free environment without coercion and pressure, of value and love truth and comprehend truth and bring it to apply to their life as soon as they can understand. Those are his designs, absolutely. Yes? Well, even Jesus Christ is our example. He went through the stages of growth and maturity and reasoning and everything. 
but he did without sin. So the more, when we make the right choices, glory to the Lord. She brought up Jesus Christ. I'm glad you did, because he, of course, did. He was born as an infant, and he grew and went through developmental stages. He did. What developmental stage was he at age 12? <laughs> at age 12, he was having a conversation with whom and where? The religious leaders at the temple. And what moral stage was Christ, and what moral stage were they? <laughs> at 12, he was already instructing them. He was already asking them questions, and he, and he was so wise and so gentle, he did it as if he was trying to learn from them. He didn't lecture them. He went and said, can you explain to me Isaiah chapter 53? How is it that the Savior will be beaten and we will be healed by his wounds? How is it that... that and, and it was designed to get them to think about these things. To open their minds. So he was already past them at age 12. Yes. I have a friend who adopted uh, little boys from Russia from an orphanage, and it takes a long time when you've been in a situation where you've been brainwashed into not understanding love because you never had it, to come to that point where you really understand that your parents love you and that it isn't just the rules of being good and all that stuff that's actually I love you. And I think we're kind of stuck in that, too, in our church. We've been raised in our and so what suggestions would you have for us in this community how do we go forward hopefully as level six thinkers and livers living as level six to reach those that are still transitioning understanding if they're in level four they can't even understand where we are and why we're doing they'll see us as heretics they'll want to persecute us When you were talking about how Jesus spoke to the <clears throat> Pharisees in the synagogue, I was reminded of Paul's verse where he says, I've become all things to all people. And I think what we need to do is we need to recognize when we talk to anybody where they are at and speak to them, become to them what they need at that point, but still keep where we are. I think that's exactly right. Stay where we are, speak to them where they are. So as um, Ben said a moment ago, we have to reach backward and try to talk to them on a level they can understand. In psychiatry, one of my professors told us that when, it, when we deal with patients, he used the metaphor of a golf game. And in golf, there's a rule that you play the ball where it lies. You don't understand what that means. That if it's in the sand, you don't get to go move it over to the nice fairway so you have a better shot. You have to play it where it lies. Patients come to me, I have to play them where they lie in the condition they're in. I can't move them to an easier uh, diagnosis or an easier situation so they're easier to treat. I have to deal with them where they are. Likewise, when we're dealing with people as Christians going out to witness, we have to deal with them where they are in the condition they're in. And one of the things that is helpful, uh, Kohlberg said it here, is to create cognitive dissonance or cognitive disequilibrium. So we can gently, as Christ was doing with the Pharisees, he was asking questions that would set up cognitive dissonance. Hey, my model doesn't fit a suffering and dying Savior. But the scripture, Isaiah, tells us this is going to happen. But my model doesn't answer that. That's unsettling. How do I fit that in? And so we can ask questions that are designed to expose the weaknesses in these other, other um, constructs to hopefully get them to start processing and looking towards the next level of development. And so we want to, we want to do things in our conversations that are designed to cause cognitive dissonance unsettle them in their mind. 
And that's mostly done in a friendly, inqui- inquisitory way, not in an ac- accusatory way. Way in the back, yeah. Uh, I'd make a couple of points. One of them is I teach statistics, and I explain to students about gerrymandering, how districts are made to look like spider mating, their votes are not counted, and the students said, I wish I had known about that. And so I said, I gave them some action research to do, and I said, I want you to write a letter, and uh, you're, whoever you think the decision making would be, and not an unfunded mandate, I gave them a dollar, and so it doesn't have my fingerprints on it, I let them mail it to that postal school. And I was very impressed with some of the letters that they wrote, and they were very respectful. You have a very important job, but explain to me why you do this. And I was, I was very, I didn't listen to them, approach. I let them do what they wanted. I was very impressed with the way they were quite persuasive in the questions they asked. Second thing I want to make a point was beyond that moral development stage of doing to others what you have to do unto you is something is to do unto others as they would want to be done unto them. For example, uh, somebody said, uh, I'll give you a steak dinner. Well, I'm a vegetarian. That's what they would have want done to them, but that doesn't mean that's what I want done to me. So the next level is to do what people would want done unto them, which means we have to understand where they are. Well, I would, um, I understand the principle you're trying to get to. Uh, I think the, the love principle goes even beyond that and says, do unto others what is in their best interest. Because I know many people who want done to them, buy me a pack of cigarettes, get me a fifth of vodka, go get me some cocaine or marijuana. That's what I want done unto me. And if you love me, you do it. Um, no, if I love you, I won't. And so I understand the principle, but I think maybe we even take it to the point of when we really love others, we do what's in their eternal best interest with our energies, not, what they, not necessarily what they want. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we want to make a case that the power and authority are essential to hold together a level group or Otherwise, you have Can you, I can't think of a single example of a community held together by level six. Mm-hmm. And, and why would that be the case? Simple explanation. I actually can think of a community held together like that. You can? Mm-hmm. Heaven. God's eternal community. And under, if you understand the perspective of the, of the multiple worlds in Hebrews 1 and 3 that God has created, and if you read in the Spirit of Prophecy, Ellen White's descriptions, this little world is out of sync with the rest of the universe. The rest of the universe community is held together by level 6. Only our little world, and so the reason in our little world we can't see it, because the kingdoms of the world, if you notice in Bible prophecy, God's kingdom is never represented by a kingdom of the world. It's also not represented by the beasts. It's represented by a lamb. Kingdoms of the world are practicing the worldly methods. And we cannot look to the kingdoms of the world to understand God's kingdom because they always use coercive power and pressure and control. Because they're, these are the kingdoms of the world. They practice Satan's methods. And that's what we see, and Corinthians tells us that we live, that this world is a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men, and we see those two antagonistic principles of war. But we won't see that community until Christ comes. So then it exists today, where it exists, as soft and light and not as a community. Yeah, I don't think there's a, 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 a um, sanctioned nation, an independent nation that practices this, no. Or sanctioned church? No. The, in fact, the, with the church, we're told that the weeds and tares grow up together in the church. 
And who did this? The enemy has done this. So he doesn't want our church to have cohesiveness. He works against it because he knows if we were to actually come together in that type of level six love for each other, where we have that cohesion, that that would be such a powerful light to the world that would, it would disrupt Satan's control on minds and hearts. And so he works to, to constantly cause these divisions and these fractions and to attack those who are moving this direction to keep them down because his time is short. He's like a roaring lion going around to see who he can devour. Yeah. The early Christian church for a brief time, I think, had some of this. But they also, if you read the Corinthians, there were a lot of problems. Man sleeping with his dad's wife and all this kind of stuff going on in the early Christian church. There were a lot of problems they were trying to extinguish there as they were growing. A lot of immaturity. They weren't yet at level six. There was a lot of immaturity. But there was this in the leadership, I think, a consensus. But there was also some competition going back and forth between the leaders in Jerusalem and Paul. And there's a lot of tensions going on there as well. So those things being worked out of the heart. Well, our time is out. Let's, let's go to prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a moral and loving God who practices the principles that Jesus has taught us to love others and to love you. Lord, we have had our minds darkened and distorted, and we for many years been afraid of you and practiced principles that were at an inferior and an immature stage. But we want to grow up to become the mature, righteous sons and daughters of God. We pray that your Holy Spirit will enlighten our minds, transform our hearts, write that law of love in our hearts and minds. Give us wisdom to discern the right from the wrong and help us to go out and practice these principles and have the wisdom to speak to others, to cause that cognitive dissonance and to woo them along to higher stages of development, that they might have that peace and joy that comes from knowing you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.